This episode of Physically Spiritual is the second part of the final episode of the food series on the Eucharist. All right, so all of this software upgrading, <laughs> what's happening then in, in our ancestors is they start to form these ancient cities. We see this happening uh, as best of our knowledge in the area of the Fertile Crescent, especially in the ancient Sumerian civilization, these ancient cities being formed. And what these cities allow for is, is a greater diversification of roles, right? You, you have a smaller and smaller percent of the population that's required for the collection of food. At one point, just getting enough food and keeping everyone safe was sort of an all-hands-on-deck thing in the tribe. Now, with this case in the city, there's a smaller percent of people that need to collect food and then a smaller percent of people that need to keep everyone safe. But these become more and more specialized positions, right? You might have professional full-time soldiers and professional full-time farmers. But then there's a whole class of society that's not required to fight or to farm. There's a merchant class, there's an academic class, there's a priestly class, there's a, a, a leading class, right? These different people with greater specialized roles. And this could only happen because of this software upgrade that's happening in the human person as a result of our rationality. But in these ancient cities, as they're solving for survival, as they're solving for where are we going to eat, how are we going to be safe, what happens is there's also an increase of slavery. Uh, some fossil records imply that there's also a decrease of human health. We know all of these ancient civilizations practice some form of idolatry, some form of, of, of pagan worship by which they made sacrifices to their gods. Then there was also some kind of a leader, a king, an emperor. And typically what went with this kind of kingship was also a, a, a divinization of the king, an idol worship where the king was considered a god. This had practical benefits for the king. If the king was just another dude that happened to be in charge, well, any other person in the society could kill the king and then take over. But if the king was God, right, no one else would dare try to kill him. No one else would dare try to take over. Right? So there was kind of a practical benefit of this, but it also fit the mode of their society. You didn't just make sacrifices to these gods that were out there, whether it was a representative of nature or, or, or a, um, a symbol that was sort of a, a representative of the city, but you're also making a sacrifice to your king. You're making a tithe to the king, in a sense, a tax to the king. But the people, the vast majority of the civilization ended up in this kind of slave state where even though they were safe, right, they had food, they had shelter. So these, uh, these acute problems that human nature faced were solved for. There was an exchange to solve for acute problems to accept chronic difficulties. Right? We see this played out in the fossil records as people became less healthy. There was tooth decay, a shrinking of the human body, an introduction of more chronic diseases in the society. But there's also a spiritual issue here. In a previous episode, I explored the fact that while, while physically, the physical macronutrients the body needs are carbohydrates, protein, and fat, the macronutrients that our soul needs are the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one. We need to be connected. We need to experience goodness, love. We need to, to experience truth. We need this kind of knowledge, this kind of wisdom. Uh, and we also need to experience beauty. We need to be inspired. We need to be, um, we need to be uh, lifted up. We need to experience things that point to the eternal, that point to the universal, that point to what was beyond us. So while in, in these ancient cities, these, uh, the, the acute problems of getting enough macronutrients were solved, so humans weren't starving or getting killed by other humans as often, on the other hand, there was a, a new problem because there was this increase of wickedness in the world as people were, were enslaved by others, as there's this um, um, uh, a growth in idolatry, right? The, the software that's being upgraded into the human heart and mind isn't just um, solving for how to survive. It's also now 
solving for for the self-interest of the system that's in place. Meaning there's a certain untruth that's now brought into the picture because if the king needs to stay in power, one of the ways by doing that is by manipulating the people or what we in modern times call propaganda. Right? You, you change the people's hearts and minds in order to maintain the status quo. And this is the very situation where the, the, the scriptural story comes in. Right? All this kind of ancient prehistory stuff is, is it expressed in a microcosm in what we find in the creation accounts. And then in this, this prehistory in the first few chapters of Genesis, we then see this kind of wickedness expressed in the story of, of the great flood. Right? There's this wickedness in the city and Noah and his family are the only people that are, are found worthy. So God cleanses the earth with a flood. Then we also see it expressed in the Tower of Babel. The people are going to build this great tower, this ziggurat to the heavens. And in doing this, they're going to, to grasp something of the power that God himself has. Right? And all of this uh, is kind of pointing in a really beautiful way into this, these deep ancient truths of human society, of the way that, that people work trying to grasp at the power of gods, right? This divine kingship that these ancient cultures were kind of founded upon. And then when the, the biblical narrative picks up in God's rescue mission for humanity, there's this guy, Abram, with his family. And he's in where? Ur of the Chaldees. Ur is one of these ancient Mesopotamian cities, part of the, the Samaritan civilization. So he, he's in this space and God calls him out of that space. He calls his family basically around the Fertile Crescent into the promised land, into this land flowing with milk and honey. He calls him out of the city and into this kind of a semi-nomadic lifestyle, right? He's still using the software layer, right? They're still living in shelters. There's this tribe that Abram has. He has animals that he cares for. And there's an increase in the blessings that happen. So what the Bible isn't saying isn't, it's not saying that technology is bad, right? It's not, software itself isn't bad. What it's saying is, is, is the particular organization that happened as a result of these ancient civilizations wasn't the best for human flourishing. So God had to get his people out of that situation in order to bring about their redemption, in order to rechange the human heart. And we see this again and again in the story. Well, what happens when, when uh, Abram's flocks expand beyond what the land could, um, could, could handle? He and his, his brother separate. Lot separates. And he goes, and, and where does Lot end up? Well, he ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He ends up back in one of these ancient cities where this kind of wickedness is taken over in a, in a really crazy way. And, and that city's destroyed, and, and Lot's whole family doesn't make it out. But he has to turn away from that and not look back, right? Not look back. There, there's, a, a, in a sense, a virus that's entered into the human software. And in order for Lot to be free of that, he has to not look back. And his wife that does look back is turned to stone, right? What's God doing? He's cleansing the human heart. The chosen people then, in a drought, right? There's an acute problem of not having enough food. Joseph's down in Egypt as a result of his brother selling him off into slavery. Right, to one of these ancient civilizations, he becomes a slave. But he's able, by God's divine intervention, to be free of that. Well, well how do the chosen people uh, account for this acute problem of their starvation? Well, they go down to Egypt. They go down into one of these ancient civilizations. And in that migration, while at first they're fine, what happens is the generations pass and there's a new God king in Egypt a new Pharaoh, they become slaves again. They become slaves again. 
And while they have plenty of food and they're plenty safe, they have to, to work to build bricks. For what? What are they building bricks for? For the Pharaoh's buildings, right? What they're essentially doing is they're, the chosen people are now enslaved to build the Tower of Babel. <laughs> to build structures for a God king in order to proclaim his greatness, to secure their society apart from the worship of the one true God. And how does God free his people? He frees his people by, one, by plagues on the Egyptians. Right? He, he tears apart their safety and security, demonstrating to them that that they're, they can't rely on their agriculture, they can't rely on their river, which provides for floods and silt so the agriculture can be perpetual in the region. They can't even, they can't even rely on their king because God kills the firstborn of their king. So in these plagues, God's stripping away the illusion that the Egyptians have of their grandeur and safety apart from him. But he's also demonstrating that to his chosen people, that their safety is not in Egypt, that their safety is found in him, right? God's stripping the virus out of their heart little by little so that when the chosen people are free, they're not just physically out of Egypt, but their heart also has to be out of Egypt. So when the chosen people get out of Egypt, the first thing that happens is they're given the law. They're given the law. And what's this law? This law is, it's the right software, right? God's given him an upgrade. He's, he's refreshing the corruption out of the system. He's, in a sense, teaching them how to be human again in the midst of a world. He's, he's teaching them proper worship, a structure of society that, that while it is conditioned by their culture, right? So we don't follow that law exactly as it's revealed in the scripture, um, it, it's, it's an upgrade from where they were in Egypt. Now, why didn't God give them the law in the first place? Right? God's first plan was for the, the, the people to come through a, a father, Abram. So in essence, by reforming Abram's heart and mind, by renewing his heart and mind, then God would reform his people's heart and mind. Because the whole people was coming from Abram, right? The, 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 the transformation of Abram would then be sort of caught by, by family structure, by the upraising of children in the midst of their homes and in the midst of their tribe. And, and the law was sort of caught by this, this family growth model. Now the, the families are already in place. And there's moments where God contemplates just killing them all off and starting over again. <laughs> but God's merciful and doesn't do that. So God needs to reform the software of a people that's been corrupt. Their families have been corrupted. Their tribes have been corrupted. So he does this by giving them a law and a structure, a new tribal structure to their society. So that in a sense, they could um, maintain the benefits of, of, a, of a family approach, of a tribal approach, and at the same time then also try to have the benefits of a more structured society, right? Where, where things could expand past that, that kind of base layer of a hundred people or however many could fit into a tribe effectively. So there's a couple other important details in this Exodus story that are, are worth dwelling on for a moment. One, the, the way that the, the chosen people's firstborns weren't killed in the final plague was by having a Passover meal. So they sacrificed a lamb, spread the, the blood on the lentil of their door, and then the angel of death would pass over the homes where the blood of the lamb was present. The angel of death would pass over the homes where the blood of the lamb was present. And so by the, the, the priestly act of the father of the household— and sacrificing the lamb and then leading the prayers with their family in this, this ancient Passover meal. And, and they, they passed, in this meal, they broke and passed unleavened bread because the bread wouldn't have time to rise. They had to get out of Egypt quickly. And then also 
They shared multiple cups in this meal, three cups of wine. By having this ritual meal, the people were uh, were doing this uh, this beautiful thing where they're uh, reminding themselves of their own story. They're reminding themselves of their own story. This is all part of that, that reformation of the software that needs to happen in the hearts of the chosen people. And then they're, they're out in the desert now. They've received the law. They're physically free from the Egyptians. But what happens is the people again and again, they complain. We don't have food to eat. So God gives them manna and quail. And the people get tired of the miraculous food that God's making appear. So it says that they, they lust over the flesh pots of Egypt. They think of the food that they were provided for in their slavery in Egypt. And they, they want that. The food that God's giving them is, is too boring or whatever. And then they, they get to the promised land and they get inside and they, they, there's, they say there's giants there. It's scary, right? The armies of the people in Canaan are too strong and they turn away. And as a result, they then wander for 40 years in the desert. 40 years is the length of time of a generation. So they're not wandering because they're, they're sort of lost on the map. It's not that they can't find the promised land. They've been there once and they can get back. They're lost in their hearts. Because even though uh, you might say that God took the Jews out of Egypt, Egypt is still in the Jews. This is the golden calf story on Mount Sinai. And then before the chosen people enter the promised land, they create another idol, a Baal. Uh, and this is in the, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. So in, in, in a sense, even though God's taken his people out of Egypt, Egypt is still in their heart. And by the ritual acts they perform in the Passover celebration, but then also in the, the temple rituals, right? there's, there's a, a continuous acting out of the truth that the chosen people are supposed to be doing. And by the participation in this continuous acting out of the truth, the idea is they're both, uh, they're both uh, transforming their hearts and minds in accordance with God's design, but then they're also continuously inoculated against new corruptions in the software. And finally, after 40 years and the dying off of an entire generation, right, a corrupt generation, there's a new generation finally represented by the passing from, from, from Moses to Joshua of the leadership of the people. And then this restatement of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, like this continuous kind of trying to reform, take the virus out of the software of their hearts. The people finally enter into the promised land. They're given the promised land. And in this promised land, there's a tribal structure the people do farm, they do have communities, they have towns, but they're, they're doing it in a way different than the pagan peoples. But even in spite of this, the people cry out for a king. They want to be like their neighbors. God's got them out of Egypt, but God hasn't gotten Egypt completely out of them yet. This is what the people cry out for in the first book of Samuel, chapter 8. It says, the, govern, God, the, the people are crying out for a king, and this is God's response to his people through the prophet Samuel. He says, the governance of the king who will rule you will be as follows. He will take your sons and assign them to his chariots and horses, and they will run before his chariot. He will appoint from among them his commanders of thousands and of hundreds. He will make them do his plowing and harvesting and produce his weapons of war and chariotry. He will use your daughters as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will tithe your crops and grape harvests to give to his officials and his servants. He will take your male and female slaves as well as your best oxen and donkeys and use them to do his work. 
He will also tithe your flocks. As for you, you will become his slaves. I'll repeat that. As for you, you will become his slaves. On that day, you will cry out because the king whom you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. The Lord will not answer you on that day. This is like some of the harshest words in the whole scripture are right here. You will become his slaves and the Lord will not answer you on that day. And we know this happens. Some of the kings are better than others, but none of the kings are perfect. The kingdom slowly devolves back into idol worship. There's altars built in the high places where sacrifices are made to the pagan idols. There's intermarriage between the, the pagan peoples and the chosen people. And this is important because remember, the soft part of the software download is happening by children being raised by their parents. So if there's mixed marriages, this means that there's, in a sense, the, the virus of, of, that, of that idolatrous software is entering into the chosen people's hearts. And this, the, the, the high point of this is King David's unfaithfulness. Because by taking Bathsheba and killing her husband, and then taking her as his wife, she's not a Jew. It says that, that her and her husband were Hittites. Uriah the Hittite. So this means the mother of the king is a pagan woman. So this means now the king's software is corrupt too. And we see the result of this. And the Lord, in the end, does not answer their cry. God allows them to go into exile. Why? It's not because God is cruel. It's because oftentimes the natural consequences of our actions are in our best interest. I'll say that again. The natural consequences of our actions are in our best interest. So the natural consequence of the chosen people's idolatry, of trying to become a kingdom like other kingdoms and compete on the world stage by increasing technology and armor and in, in armor and in, in armies and, and to try to conquer the world by the world's standards, it was folly. And so the chosen people were conquered by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, and they are sent in exile. God let this happen, not because he was cruel, but because it was actually in their best interest. Because the virus had entered the chosen land. So it wasn't in the best interest for the people to keep the chosen land. They had to be purified. The only way to be purified is through suffering. And the people are sent into exile. They're under a new God king. They're slaves in a new kingdom because they had become slaves in their kingdom. And God worked out by a specific way for them to be free again by changing the heart of the God king of Persia. And the chosen people are, are, are able to enter back into the chosen land. And by entering back in, there's a new purity of their faith. And in that, that purity, we then see that expressed in the way that they resist the Greek empire. In the book of Maccabees, we read the great stories of the, the, some of the chosen people resisting the idolatry, refusing to break the Jewish purity laws, refusing to sacrifice to idols. And, and, and in a great uprising, being able to maintain some kind of freedom in the midst of this great empire. Now, the, the chosen people are eventually conquered. They're conquered finally and definitively by the Greeks, but then they're also conquered then by the Romans. And in the Roman Empire, there's, in a way, a high point of this, this ancient city-state empire worshiping the emperor technology <laughs> that had been used since very ancient times. And this is, in a way, kind of lost in translation. 
we don't understand the way that that this ancient cult of worship of idolatry of the Caesar was tied up in the Roman emperor but this is a this was found on an inscription it's believed to be from about 6 BC on a government building in Turkey in Asia Minor this is what it says on this inscription it says the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good, fortune of all, the beginning of all life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Do you hear that? Having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times. Right? All of the cities use his birthday as the beginning of the new year. Each one of these individual collections, led by their own idol, of people then gathered into empires and the emperor is a, is a God over the gods, right? He's a God over the gods. And this is what we see in the Roman empire. They allowed the individual cities to continue to worship their gods. They didn't care because Caesar was God over the gods. Caesar was the great act of divine providence. Caesar gave safety to the world. Caesar gave food to the world. Caesar gave order. So it was fine. You could play in your little sandbox and have whatever God you wanted, Ishtar, Baal, Apollo. They didn't care. Because Caesar ruled. So when when God comes into this space for his people that are once again under the foot of this ancient empire, how does he come? He comes as a, as, a, as a baby, as a human person, as God made man. And this, this God made man, the scripture presents him in a very politically provocative way. Remember, Caesar's the, the son of God. When the Roman Empire, this is a reflection, beautiful reflection by Bishop Barron has talked about this in depth. Um, the, the, the Evangelion, the, the good news was oftentimes Caesar's victory in battle was the good news. The good news was this news of the order that Caesar had given to the empire. So when the Gospel of Mark comes in and says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, these these are politically charged words that are being used here. When Christ is claimed as the Son of God, these are politically charged words. When the host of angels appears and worships Jesus, the word that's used for that host is the same word that's used for an army. Right? There's a new kingdom that's here. It's different than the kingdoms of the world. But it is a kingdom. It's not apolitical. These were words that got people killed in the ancient world. And, and, and the Christians weren't persecuted in the ancient world just because they had a different religion. No, everyone had different religions. The empire didn't care. The Christians were persecuted in the Roman world because the Romans understood that the Christian claims were foundationally going to undermine their civil order. Because it, 
Caesar wasn't the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of the gods. Jesus Christ was. Right, there's that, that interesting dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees where they're trying to trick him once again. Uh, Jewish people wouldn't carry um, Roman currency because it had Caesar's face on it and it claimed that, that Caesar was the son of God on it. And so these, these Pharisees bring to him a Roman coin and ask, you know, will you pay your taxes? And Jesus says, we'll pay to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. You know, part of the irony of this is like, what's not God's? Um, so we, people often use this as like a, as an explanation to say why like Christians are fine existing in a, in a wicked society. <laughs> um, but, but all of this is, is demonstrating the ways at which even though the Pharisees scrupulously followed the letter of the law, there was something about their heart that was given over to the virus. Right? They still paid those taxes. They still participated in the Roman cult of emperor worship to some extent. They, they did things to try to mitigate it by the letter of the law, but their hearts still had the virus in them. So Jesus, at the end of his life, the real God King, at the end of his life, he has a meal with his friends with his tribe, with the group of people that he lived with for three years to reform and transform their hearts, right? Jesus isn't just giving them new ideas. He's, he's, uh, he's getting the virus out of the apostles' hearts. So he lives with them for three years. And, and at the climax of this, they have this Passover meal together. And in this meal, Jesus does something different. When he, when he breaks and shares that bread, that unleavened bread, he says, this is my body. And when they pass the third cup in that meal, he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And then this, this whole action is then taken into Jesus' suffering and death. In resurrection. The great scholarly work of Dr. Scott Hahn has drawn this out, that the fourth cup of that Seder meal happens on the cross. Jesus is pulling this whole suffering event into that ancient Seder ritual. It wasn't called the Seder at the time. There was a Passover meal. The Seder was a more, more modern development. Um, but Jesus's blood, you might say, is spread over the cross and the cross is what the doorway to our salvation. So by participating in this Paschal meal, in Jesus' Paschal meal, the angel of death passes over our homes. So we receive life. We receive a pledge of eternal life in the Eucharist if we receive it worthily in a state of grace. But like the chosen people who, while have been gotten physically out of Egypt in the desert, right? Egypt needs to also get out of their hearts. And this is, in essence, our state. Jesus has pulled all of this up into these sacraments, into these new rites. So we have this non bloody offering that we make on the altar that. That, that represences Christ's one definitive sacrifice on the cross. And then in this, we receive God in the form of food, in the most basic form of what we need as humans, but in the form of food, in the midst of a community, in the midst of a tribe, in the midst of a family. And by doing this, we are receiving as the catechism said, we are receiving the perfection of the spiritual life. The perfection of the spiritual life. But it has it actually perfected any of our spiritual lives? Right Back to that initial uh, problem that I brought up. 
that even though we receive the Eucharist, how much does the Eucharist actually transform us? And, and this, this whole long historical narrative that I'm going through is, is trying to make a, a basic point that we need to get Egypt out of our hearts. That we need to get Egypt out of our hearts. The reason why our government doesn't perceive Christians as the same kind of threat that the Roman Empire perceived the early Christians is because there's too much Egypt in our heart. What what Christianity did in essence, this software upgrade that God has given to humanity, it took the the best of what was available to us in the hunter-gatherer state, which was what? Which was the family structure the fact that that children were given this this constant leg up on the whole rest of the world by the upbringing that their parents gave them. And this happened in the midst of a larger tribe, a family of families with a patriarch and a matriarch. Right? That, that, that basic uh, building block of human society, which is the family, which above and beyond our rational capacity is the, is the benefit, is the superiority we, we have to the rest of the created order. The fact that we're made in God's image and like this, not just as rational beings, but as a communion of persons, as a family. Right? So, so how do we take that benefit and extend it out to the whole society? Well, we do that by all becoming God's kids. God adopted us as his sons and daughters. So the new God King, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Most High, who's become human to reform the human heart through relationship, which is how we're designed to be reformed, that new God King invites us to be a member of his royal family. And human society can function in a way different than other societies in the midst of Christendom is because we all have the same dad. So there's a kind of familial tribal relationship for all humanity in the midst of the new covenant. This is why we see that that decentralization of, of government can work when there's a strong tribal structure to society. And this is what happened in high Christendom, was there was a, a vast amount of decentralization to things like the Holy Roman Empire and, and seasons of, 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 uh, of Christian order in France and other countries, where there, were, there was a ruler, there was a king, there was an emperor, but had very limited power compared to other emperors and kings. And these societies were able to flourish, sometimes even without standing armies. And this was possible because of the software upgrade that the gospel gives us. And what we see is as, as Christendom wanes in our society today, what becomes more and more necessary in order to maintain social and civil order is totalitarianism. whether it be in the form of, of um, communist countries becoming more liberal or liberal countries becoming more communist, right? We, we have this, this kind of, we're, we're slowly trying to meet each other in the middle <laughs> where our classic democracies are slowly incorporating more social programs and more government oversight. And then our, 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 uh, our, our socialist countries are becoming more and more, we're, we're kind of entering into this, this middle ground but the central theme of, of the direction of both as they marched through history and time was totalitarianism. And one of the reasons for this is without the gospel, totalitarianism is necessary. I'll say that again. It's a bold claim. And if you disagree with me, make comments. But without the gospel, totalitarianism is necessary. Because the thing that makes human nature work 
in a society that doesn't express absolute power is that, is that there is an absolute power, but that absolute power is God. And we flourish in that society because of the software upgrade that God gives us, that God offers us. So what our faith offers us is we're able to take advantage of the best of the of of what our ancient ancestors used in their tribal societies and create a more complex society with technology and and an intricate organization and, and and in the midst of all of that stay not slaves we're able to stay not slaves and so as our as our contemporary world slowly marches toward totalitarianism we don't have to wonder why but we have the antidote to totalitarianism the eucharist because what the eucharist says to human nature is you will have food but you will not be slaves You will have safety, but you will not be slaves. You will have a king, but you will be his children. Right? This is what the Eucharist says to our human nature. This is what what echoes deep down into human history. This is why the chosen people were able to establish a different style of society when they entered the chosen land. And it was why? High Christendom was able to establish a different style of society that we look back on as a, as a dark age, but that's because what, what we value as a civilization, the centralization of power, the size of a military, uh, the, the ability of the, the government to, to centrally organize things and orchestrate things, right? we look at this as a low time in history. But just consider that people were able to to grow and and live, not perfectly. There were plenty of problems in that time. Without that kind of centralized authority and power is a miracle. It's a miracle. And and in our current society, right, as the, the state moves toward more and more centralized power, it's not an accident that it simultaneously happens as Christendom wanes. All right, let's start to land this and bring this together. So in order to receive the grace the Eucharist is offering us, we need to live a life that resonates with the Eucharist. So there's this symbiosis between what what we bring to God and what God brings to us. So we both receive the grace that God's offering us. So God's initiating the gift, but, but we need to dispose ourselves. We need to be open to receiving it. There's this immediate preparation to receive when you're receiving communion, right? You need to be present, reverent, fully engaged. There's a approximate preparation. This is the liturgy. You're entering into certain rites, a, a beautiful uh, prayer experience with a group of people that disposes your heart to receive the gift. But then there's also that distant preparation of your whole life. Remember this, these, these ancient rituals the chosen people were going through, it was an act of continually reforming the human heart, inoculating them against the virus of pagan idol worship, but also a, a kind of a, almost like a massaging process. Right? We, we know the human heart doesn't just change instantly and miraculously typically. Sometimes God works that way, but typically it happens through a gradual process, through an educational process, through the process of, of like, like the raising of a child. The, the spiritual life, the great analogy for the spiritual life is going through the levels of human development. So our whole life needs to be reformed. And we have to recognize that living in the midst of a wicked society makes it very difficult for this reformation of heart to happen. So even though, in a sense, we as a Catholic people in the Western world live in the midst of a new kind of Egypt, in a new Ur, in a new Babylon, in a new Rome, 
I mean, if you don't think we live in a new Rome, check out Washington, D.C. Right? They emulated Roman architecture for a reason. There was a basic claim being made there that this is a new Rome. Right? So we're clearly living in the midst of this kind of society. And oftentimes we live with kind of a truce. We think we just need to change a couple laws or elect the right, right leader and everything will be fine. I don't know if that's true or not. I'll let you figure it out. But it makes this kind of distant preparation of giving our whole life to God so that we can receive the whole Christ that's being offered us. It makes this very difficult. I want to propose, like these ancient people who had these rites, who had these prayers that were teaching them how to live, that we also, in our rites and prayers, teach us how to live. So the liturgy itself is a sort of instruction manual for life. So the liturgy is a glimpse into eternity and then a microcosm of the kingdom of heaven. So in this moment, we wanted to have a liturgical lifestyle to then live a life that's contrary to the society that's around us. And I'm now going to go through the liturgy of the word and the Eucharist to just give you some ideas of what this could mean. First, you'll notice when, uh, when the Mass starts, there's this interesting dialogue that happens again and again between the priest and his people. The, the priest says, the Lord be with you. And the people respond, and with your spirit. Right? There's this basic dignity, this encounter with one another. And this phrase, and with your spirit, is interesting. It used to just be, and also with you. And the church, in its wisdom, decided to retranslate that. And we use this phrase that's kind of odd and obscure and with your spirit. Why do we say this? Part of it is in, in the encounter between the priest and the people, it's not just a surface encounter of one person to another. There's a recognition of the deeper reality of what's happening there. The liturgy is a dialogue, a nuptial dialogue between Christ and his church. And the priest is up there on behalf of the person of Christ, the head, and the people are there on behalf of the person of Christ, the body. So in this, referring to Ephesians 5, the image of Christ in this church, there, there's this, this recognition of the deeper dignity of the priest and of the people in this dialogue and with your spirit and with Christ. Peace be with you. So in a similar way, we as humans are invited into a, a deeper culture of encounter. And I've heard it said that everyone you've ever encountered is going to live for eternity. Every person that you encounter is body and soul, is capable of truth, of wisdom, is a, capable of being a temple of the Holy Spirit in God's beautiful rites especially in baptism. Right? Every person we encounter has this deeper reality. And so much of the struggle in our society is just seeing people skin deep. Right? How does advertising happen? Something like pornography. How, what, what is all this? It's using people as a means to an end, but it's also not recognizing their deeper dignity. One of those provocative lines that a pope has ever said um, Actually, I'm not sure it's the Holy Father or not, so I'm going to hold my words because I don't want to misinform people or spread um, these kind of sayings that we pass around that aren't necessarily true. But the, the idea um, that we have here is that, that, that we're encountering everyone on the surface. And social media can drive this too. And we as Catholics need to encounter the deeper, the true, the good, and the beautiful in the other people around us. That dialogue, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. This should be the form of all Christian dialogue, of everyone you meet, the language of your body. What, what you're communicating through that encounter should be summed up in this dialogue. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. All right, so deeper encounter is the first thing the liturgy teaches us. The next thing we have is a penitential rite. There's this 
great act of apologizing and forgiveness. We say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We recognize our faults and our failures. We ask for God's forgiveness. And this is essential for human society. Apology and forgiveness. Reconciliation. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt each other. In a fallen world, we're all victims and we're all perpetrators. We've all been hurt by others and we've all hurt others. No one's innocent. And no one gets off without being wounded in this fallen world. So it's necessary in order to live a full Christian life is apology and forgiveness, constant reconciliation with one another. This isn't a, uh, a kind of scrupulosity, right? Because sometimes people get in the habit of just apologizing for everything, even when they haven't done something wrong. But, but actually apologizing and taking the moment to say, I'm sorry for this. I did this. It hurt you. And then the other person to actually say, I forgive you. A lot of people just say, it's okay, it's fine, which implies I'm not that important anyways. Like you didn't hurt anything of significance. Like it didn't didn't mean, it didn't mean something, right? They're a son or daughter of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. So to apologize and then to forgive, right? We live in in a society where forgiveness isn't possible for some people, right? We cancel people. You make the wrong mistake, you break the, the law of the software of our current society. You do something that's not woke or whatever, right? You get canceled. And to get canceled is, is a kind of societal excommunication where, where all of the, the different levers they can pull, they pull. They take away your reputation, your money, your position, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So we live in a world that in a re- real way doesn't allow for penance, doesn't allow for apology, doesn't allow for reconciliation. But we as Christians are called to live a life of reconciliation. Early on in the Mass too, we have this great Gloria prayer, this this act of praise and worship of God and recognizing what God has done for us, giving him praise, giving him glory. So we as Christians need to live lives of worship where our whole life resonates for worship of God, but then there are also those particular moments of worshiping God in our day and in our life. All this is collected into a prayer. The priest says, let us pray. And then we offer this prayer together. So there has to be moments in our day where we, we collect ourselves, we collect our lives, and we bring it to God. We pray to him, we talk to him, while our whole life is meant to be a prayer If we don't have specific moments of prayer, none of our life will be a prayer. So there's specific moments of prayer in the Mass. So we also have to have specific moments of prayer in our life. After the first collect, we have the readings and the homily. This period of time where we sit down, we listen to the words of the Scripture. And in listening to the words of the Scripture, we're trying to listen for the Word, the one Christ who is communicated to us through the scriptures. And this is the essential act of the homily. This is why the homily is not a sermon and it's not primarily a catechetical moment. Because what the the homilist is trying to do, the priest or deacon or bishop, they're not just trying to communicate the facts of the faith, although some of those should come along with the message. They're trying to, to communicate the deeper presence of the word in the scripture. So at this time of the mass, we're, we're listening to somebody saying words, but in a sense, our heart is supposed to be listening for the deeper word, for God's presence in the midst of the message. So what's this teaching about our life? Our whole life is is ordered, is structured around, um, around information. You go out in nature and you, you, you encounter things, you come to understand things, but there's also a deeper encounter that's on offer out there in nature. You can have an encounter with the creator in the creation, right? And in our interactions with one another, are there just social interactions? Are we encountering something deeper? I heard it said once, um, it was somebody who was going to a lot of, a lot of meetings, meeting, 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 over and over again. And it gets boring, it gets monotonous. But what they said was in, in every meeting, there's something that their God has to offer them and God speaks through other people's words. 
So he believed strongly that in God's providence, in every meeting, there was something that somebody was going to say that they would receive as God speaking to them. Right? This is the kind of awareness that liturgy is trying to teach us to have. That in our day-to-day life, the word of God is trying to break through in the mundane things we do, in being outside and in interacting with other people, and learning things and interacting with our family and being with our friends, right? How is God breaking through in those moments in being present to the word in the words is what the liturgy is teaching us. Next, we have a, we have a creed. After we listen to, to God's words, we, we profess a creed together where we make a certain statement of belief. In a sense, our whole life is a statement of belief. This is the idea of the language of the body. By every one of our actions, we're doing something that communicates something objective. We might profess with our lips, but what do we profess with our actions? Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, made the claim that we could be practical atheists. Although we profess the creed with our lips, we live in a way that doesn't profess the creed. So our, our actions portray a certain kind of atheism. So we need to live a life that preaches the creed with our bodies, with our actions, with our choices. Then after this, we have petitions where we bring all of our needs to God and ask him to intercede for us. We ask for his intercession. And this is what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to bring our, our, every one of our needs to God in prayer, to beg for his intercession for us, to beg that he, he does what we can't do, to beg for the grace so that we can do what he needs us to do. Then finally, after these intercessions, we have the offertory where we bring the simple gifts of bread and wine. We typically also take up a collection of money. We bring our, our lives to God and we give them, we give everything to him is the, the mode that's happening here. We're, we're trying to give everything to him that we have and God gives everything back to us. So this is, our, our life is meant to be a complete offering to God. Everything, everything, every moment of our time, our family, Everything we possess, our homes, all of our money, our work, everything is directly or indirectly meant to be given back to God by taking care of, of what he's given us legitimate stewardship over, right? the caring for our legitimate duties, but then also giving it back and being fully generous with our time, talent, and treasure. So the offertory is teaching us we need to give our whole life to God. So this is the structure. God gives his whole self to us. We respond by giving our whole selves back to him. He responds by giving his whole self back to us. Then we respond by giving our whole selves back to him. Right? God gives his whole self to us on the cross. We're baptized. We bring our whole life to the mass. And God gives his whole self back to us in the Eucharist. And then we live our whole life for him going forth from that Eucharist. And then we come back and he gives him whole, whole self back back and forth. This is the economy of love. This is becoming gift. This is the way the ex opere operantis of the Eucharist works. This is the radical life of grace. This is what the Roman Empire saw as an existential threat. And this is what overthrew that empire through a nonviolent revolution where the structures of society literally transformed little by little into Christendom. And this is exactly what needs to happen in our society today. It's a reformation of, of our heart by an encounter of God in the midst of a community. It's never just me and Jesus. Just me isn't human. The basis of human society is being together. There's something incomplete of human nature without being with other people. And we, we <clears throat> in the midst of this, living our whole life for God, we're creating, uh, by responding to God's grace, more and more space to then respond to more of God's grace, to make more and more space to respond to more of God's grace, so on and so forth. So this is, this is the Eucharist. God becomes food for us. God provides for our deepest need. And in this, then, this is the, the Eucharistic revival. This is the new evangelization. It's our whole life and our whole family, and our whole society being restructured according to God's design. 
It's deleting the virus in the human heart of idolatry and pagan worship. And it's, it's downloading the truth, the good and the beautiful that God has given us in his word, in the gospel. All right, as I conclude this series on food, I want to do an Ask Me Anything episode. So this is kind of the final call for questions. Um, it'll come out a few weeks after this episode, just so we have time to collect the questions that come up from these episodes. So drop any questions in the comments, uh, any contestations, any mistakes that I made. I'm always open to being corrected. So please, please, please do that. Um, and thank you so much for listening and being on this journey with me, everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.